I didn't plan it this way, but the very last text we looked at this morning during our Lord's Supper time was Luke 22, and I want to have you turn there again, and we'll just kind of pick up where we left off, Luke 22, verse 14. And we read the whole text this morning, we won't read all of it right now, but the night Jesus was betrayed, he had arranged for his disciples to meet him in a large upper room in Jerusalem where he might eat the Passover meal with his men one last time. Jesus supernaturally arranged for the owner of the house to already be predisposed to loan the men his home, and the disciples found everything just as Jesus said it would be, and they arranged for the Passover meal to be prepared. Luke 14, 22-14, rather, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In verse 17, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. And verse 19, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I want to have that in our hearts and minds for a moment. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand His Word this evening. Our Father, we come to You now so very thankful for the songs we have just sung. How glorious it is. The glorious day of the coming of the Lord. It is appropriate to sing at the top of our lungs to play the instruments You've given to us with gusto and vigor Because it truly is a glorious day when you will come. And in these messages, which we've been really taking our time looking ahead to the kingdom of Christ on earth, it's our joy and it's our honor to know the details of this theological glory to the best of our ability so that we might look forward with detail and and not be ignorant of the things that are to come. I pray that this evening would help toward that end, toward understanding who you are and what your plan is for this world and how we fit into it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So what I just read from Luke 22, this was the moment. This was something that had been looked forward to for a long time. The new covenant was being openly spoken of by Jesus. And I think if you've grown up in the church... This might have been the case. I think it's tempting to restrict our understanding of the new covenant simply being what has formed the church of Jesus Christ through the death of Christ on the cross. And I think it's a surprise to many to find that the new covenant didn't originate in the New Testament. It didn't originate with Jesus walking on this earth. That's not when the new covenant began in its origination. And it comes as an even greater surprise that the new covenant is not primarily about the church. Not primarily about the church of Jesus Christ, although we do enjoy the benefits of the new covenant. And I suppose that it comes as the greatest of all the surprises that not only did the new covenant not originate in the New Testament with Jesus, not only is it not primarily about the church, but the new covenant is directly connected with the return of Jesus Christ, the battle of Armageddon, the coming setting up of a worldwide kingdom ruled by the king of all the kings. 
it's a connection we don't often make. Or to put it this way, when we enjoy the Lord's Supper together as we did this morning, the sign of the new covenant, Jesus himself connects it directly not to the church age primarily, but to the future kingdom. I skipped a few verses. Luke twenty two fifteen, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again, again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is placing a restriction on himself that the next time he partakes of the celebration of the new covenant, it will be when the kingdom of God comes. So there's a direct connection to, a, to the future. And so just as we looked at the, over the last few weeks at the implications of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant to the coming millennial kingdom, now in all of its glory, we need to examine the role of the new covenant in the coming millennial kingdom because the new covenant is like the, it's like the final booster rocket that thrusts the redemptive plan of God into orbit and completes the mission of God for mankind. And so I'm going to take the next two messages to finish this little mini-series on the covenants and how they impact the coming millennial reign of Christ. Tonight is kind of a, a time to show you the need for the new covenant. And then I'll close our time with some application because there's a, a gospel message implicit about what we're going to talk about tonight. But tonight is really just a, a building of tension, a building of need. And by the time we get done, I'm warning you in advance, you're going to have a sense of weariness. You're going to have a sense of, oh boy, do we need the new covenant. And, and I want you to live through that. I want you to experience it to a certain degree. So we're going to take a bit of a journey through the Old Testament to show you the need for a new covenant. And not just the need for the new covenant, I, I want you to sense, I want you to feel it, I want you to experience how the Old Testament builds a massive tension toward a desperation for the new covenant. How the Old Testament cries out that mankind must have Jesus. And it, it builds us toward that. And I want to take this journey in the Old Testament to show you that the Old Testament weeps, the Old Testament cries for spiritual relief. And I'll do this by looking at two topics. The first one is the failure of the kingdom in the Old Testament. And the second one is hope in the midst of that failure. The failure of the kingdom in the Old Testament and hope in the midst of the failure. So let's look first at the failure of the kingdom in the Old Testament. And we're going to start all the way at the beginning. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis one twenty six. This is a paper-cut night. We're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures, just going in, in broad fashion here. The failure of the kingdom in the Old Testament. And I want to just track this for you. Genesis one twenty six. I, I know this is a bit of a, of a review from previous messages, but we have to start here. Mankind receives a directive. I've called this the central directive of the whole Bible and for mankind. Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. And you notice some key words, have dominion, subdue, have dominion. And if you've been here for previous messages, that's two different words in Hebrew that all mean the same thing, to walk on something, to tread on it, to be over it, to dominate it. And so mankind was given the charge to be at the lead of a mediatorial kingdom in which man rules on God's behalf. God gave mankind one law, a means by which man could continue to demonstrate loyalty to God as God's image and representative. In Genesis 2.16, we find this one law. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Satan enters the picture and he tempts first the woman and then through the woman, the man. They committed the first human sin and as a result, all mankind is now cast into the path of the tsunami of death and destruction. Even the creation itself is now cursed. Genesis 3.17 In Genesis 3.17 we read, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And so now mankind is tainted with depravity. In verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and the dust you shall return. Don't miss the irony here. Instead of ruling the earth, mankind will be swallowed by the earth. The roles are reversed. The earth will win. Every man returns to the dust. And listen, don't buy into the lie that it's a, it's a natural part of life. Death is not a natural part of life. It's not a beautiful thing like being born or graduating. It's not a cosmic cycle to be admired and submitted to. It's not. Mankind goes crying and screaming into the darkness of death because it's not natural. It's the result of sin. And just in case the reader of Genesis thinks, well, maybe it was just Adam and everyone else will be okay. God gives us Genesis chapter 5. Look at Genesis 5, verse 5. Genesis 5, verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Genesis 5 says that... In this generation, no one survives the curse. Well, if you ask a a liberal person today, they would believe that mankind is evolving, growing, and, and becoming. So maybe mankind will grow spiritually, evolve into something less sinful. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, that... Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not evolve, devolve. This confirms the doctrine of total depravity and God determined the necessity of the global judgment of the flood. 
So would, would mankind learn and overcome his sin nature and never want to repeat the flood again? God promised he wouldn't repeat the flood, but not because mankind learned his lesson. So now we have Noah. Noah is basically the new Adam. He's the first man on a post-flood world. And God gives him essentially the same command. Look at Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. Very similar to God's command to, to Adam. Genesis 9, 7. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Swarm on the earth and multiply in it. Mankind was to rule in God's stead, to subdue the earth, and part of this was multiplying and spreading out and subduing the earth, dominating the earth. So what would Noah's descendants do? Turn to Genesis 11. What would they do? Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What did God say to do? Scatter over the face of the whole earth. The Tower of Babel shows mankind rebelling against God's kingdom program. Instead of multiplying to spread out over the earth, people were led to rebel and to establish a singular kingdom in their own honor, not in honor of God. Well, you know how the story goes. God confused their languages, and in doing so, God showed that He's sovereign over the nations where people groups end up. The previous chapter in Genesis 10 gives the list of where The peoples formed at the Tower of Babel would settle and gives us some insight into God's kingdom plan for the world. Part of the reason for people to scatter was that they were to form nations. And we see that nations are a part of God's kingdom plan. So how is he going to progress this forward now? Turn to Genesis 12. And if you're asking yourself, why do we talk about the Abrahamic covenant every week at Grace Bible Church? Because it's the one that the whole plan of the Bible is, is resting on. Genesis 12, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land, from your kin, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the to begin the process of leading all of these nations listed in Genesis 10 back into covenant relationship with God, God would raise up one particular nation to be his representative nation on the earth. This nation would be proven to be solely the glory of God and all to his glory because God would form this nation from one old man, Abram. This nation eventually would be named after Abraham's grandson, Israel, formerly Jacob, and the nation would serve two purposes. Israel served, first of all, the purpose of being a microcosm, a living example of a kingdom of God, a theocracy on earth. And the second purpose, Israel was to be those who pointed the rest of the nations to the true and living God. And in God's sovereign plan, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt, and yet Egypt was yet another barrier to God's kingdom plan, since Israel's purpose was to show God to the nations. Turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 1. 
In Exodus 19, God would rescue Israel from Egypt, demonstrating His covenant loyalty to His promises to Abraham. And then He officially gives Israel their commission, their purpose. Exodus 19, we'll begin in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. So now then, if you will indeed listen to My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be My treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be priests, the one who introduced God to the world. And this was a, a conditional arrangement. It was conditioned on Israel demonstrating their fidelity and loyalty to God who saved them from captivity. Turn forward to Genesis, I'm sorry, the Deuteronomy 4. In Deuteronomy 4, God explains what the arrangement is. One which Israel could fully have taken advantage of that if Israel demonstrated covenant obedience to God, they would be witness to all the world of the greatness and might of God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as Yahweh my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking. That you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. You shall keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only keep yourself and keep your soul very carefully, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons." Now, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I want to get to the part where you think maybe the kingdom has finally come. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. In in 1 Kings, remember, I just read you from Deuteronomy 4, the condition is obedience, covenant loyalty. In 1 Kings 8, God has brought Israel into the promised land. They, They entered a time in which he insisted on being their king, even though an eventual human king was promised in Deuteronomy 17. But Israel would begin a series of destructive cycles in which they rebel nationally against God's law. The book of Judges gives a synopsis of what that time was like. Judges 17.6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And finally, this chosen nation of God, they they rebel against God. They cried out for a worldly king. They wanted a king just like their neighbors. They wanted a big guy who was a a champion and a strong man. A king who would lead them in battle and fight for them. So God gave them Saul, strong on the outside and weak on the inside. Israel suffered under Saul for four decades God then gave them David, a man after God's own heart. A man God chose to be the royal kingly line from which eventually Messiah himself would come. David brought Israel to a time of peace, subduing all her enemies around her. And his son Solomon inherited a kingdom that was doing quite well. And in fact, by all accounts from 1 Kings 8, 9, and 10, it seems like that the kingdom of God is about to arrive. It's, it's glorious 
the glorious kingdom of God on earth that was always intended to be. And I want to I want to camp here for a minute because it's truly just some of the happiest times in the Old Testament. Solomon successfully built the glorious temple of God in Jerusalem. And look with me at 1 Kings 8, verse 6. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the Holy of Holies, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses laid there at Horeb where where Yahweh cut a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Listen to this glory. Now it happened that when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. How magnificent. Can you imagine witnessing this? The glory of God filling the temple. Solomon publicly extolled God and worshipped God. Verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or upon earth beneath, keeping covenant and loving kindness to your slaves who walk before you with all their heart who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have promised with your mouth and have fulfilled it by your hand as it is this day. So now, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not have a man cut off from before me who is to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons keep their way to walk as you have walked before me. So now, O God of Israel, let your word truly endure, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. What a glorious prayer that Solomon is praying on behalf of this people all gathered together. And now he pronounces a, a blessing on the people of God. In verse 54, right near the end of the chapter, this blessing now happened, verse 54, that when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to Yahweh, He arose from before the altar of Yahweh, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. Let me stop right there. Can you imagine living in a nation where the king kneels before God and lifts his hands up asking for God's blessing on the nation? We can't even fathom that. Verse 55, And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to His people Israel, according to all that He has promised. Not one promise has failed of all His good promises, which He promised by the hand of Moses, His servant. And He pronounces this blessing just asking that God be with them. What glory days these were. And then Solomon offered the sacrifice of the ages to dedicate the temple. He sacrificed 142,000 animals. And then all Israel celebrated for two weeks straight. And it just keeps getting better. In chapter 9, God appears to Solomon. Chapter 9, verse 4. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in the integrity of heart and uprightness to do all according to that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my just judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. 
just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not have a man cut off from the throne of Israel. And then verses 6 and 7, a, a quick warning. If your sons indeed turn away from me, then Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all the nations. Into verse 7. Okay, okay. But this is good news, isn't it? God appears to Solomon and makes tremendous promises. Yes, they're conditional, but they're tremendous promises. Solomon begins to do things that reminds us of the glory days of, of the biggest empires in, of the world. Solomon begins building entire cities to store the wealth of Israel. He has entire cities just to house his chariots, other cities just to house the, the horsemen. Building projects happening all over Jerusalem, all over the surrounding land. This is the rise of an empire. Solomon enslaves his enemies. He builds a massive army and now leaders of other nations begin coming to Solomon. Look at 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now the queen of Sheba heard the report about Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, so she came to test him with riddles. She came to Jerusalem with a very glorious retinue with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And she came to Solomon and spoke to him about all that was in her heart. And Solomon declared to her the answer to all her matters. There was not a matter which was hidden from the king, which he did not declare to her. Because, oh yes, Solomon is also the wisest man to ever have lived by God's help. The queen of Sheba had heard the legends about Solomon, but she didn't believe them until she saw them for herself. And later on, she confesses her unbelief. Verse 9 of chapter 10, she says to Solomon, Blessed be Yahweh your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such an abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. And then beginning in verse 14, we get a list of Solomon's personal fortune. And I could walk through this and we could spend a lot of time explaining the amounts. But basically, the easiest way to understand this, he has more than 100,000 of us put together will ever have in a lifetime. In fact, he has drinking glasses made of gold and there was an economic uh, phenomenon happening. Verse 21 says that nothing was made of silver because silver was too cheap. 1 Kings 10.24 And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. These were the glory years under a wise king who followed God, the kingdom seem to be on the way. And doesn't all of this sound reminiscent of what we've learned so far about the coming millennial kingdom? It sounds like this. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Now it happened at the time that Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from, after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And now Israel is hurled into a whole new path. 
a path of rebellion which would lead to the nation splitting under Solomon's son Rehoboam. Both the northern and the southern kingdom would eventually be judged and led into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians because of Israel's refusal to worship God. As Solomon went, so did the whole nation. In God's mercy, a small remnant would return to the land, but still under Persian control. And Israel had begun to enter into a time that Jesus later called the times of the Gentiles. Turn forward to Ezra chapter 1. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah in our Bible is divided into two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's really one work. Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of the various returns over the course of a century. Maybe this would bring about the kingdom of God. Maybe now the kingdom would come. Maybe Israel would be restored to the glory intended by God. We join the Israelites now in exile in Babylon, recently conquered, taken over by the Persians. Ezra 1.1 Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah." And in the next two verses, he said, anybody who wants to go can go and the rest of you should give money toward the effort. The drama of the return of Israel to her land begins in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. This is 538 BC, 68 years after the first exiles were taken. In two more years, the foundation of the temple of Jerusalem would be laid once again. That brings us exactly to the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah In Jeremiah 25 and 29. Ezra and Nehemiah is one long story that takes place over about 114 years. But the big question, the the big wonderment, the surprise of Ezra and Nehemiah, the question we ask is, would Israel be faithful this time? You would think after 70 years of the spanking of the ages, that they would say, okay, now we will be faithful. Now we'll bring in the the kingdom, or would something new have to happen? The geography of the situation gives us a bit of a clue. In the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the kingdom split, and after the northern kingdom fell, the only Israelite territory was the southern region of Judah, just a little bitty piece of land. And now when the remnant of Israel would return to Judah, they would only occupy about 900 square miles, a tiny percentage of the total land that was supposed to be theirs. And Maybe if you put this in perspective, Kern County is nine times larger than all the land that Israel would possess as a nation. The whole nation was only six times bigger than just the the city of Bakersfield. It, It wasn't much at all. So we get a clue that this is not a glorious return. But they do make a great start. Turn ahead to Nehemiah chapter 7, right to the very end of the chapter. Verse 73 God restored worship. He restored the shepherds of Israel. He restored divine protection over Israel. It seems like, once again, we're headed in a good direction. Nehemiah 7.73 So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their cities. This is sounding good. Then the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in their cities. It looks like the kingdom of God through Israel is making the comeback. Maybe this time they'll go all the way to permanent covenant obedience. And and it seems to just be getting better and better. 
in what I think is one of the most moving scenes in all of the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which Yahweh commanded to Israel. Ezra read the law from dawn to noon and multiple Bible teachers explained it to the people. And the people loved the preach word of God. Verse 12 of chapter 8. Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions and to celebrate with great gladness because they understood the words which had been made known to them. For 23 days they heard the word of God and they were cut to the quick by their own sin. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel gathered with, a, with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Then they rose up in their place and read from the book of the law of Yahweh their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they were confessing and worshiping God, Yahweh their God. Can you imagine taking three, four hours to confess sin? This is spiritual revival at an unprecedented level. They're led into this long prayer of confession and they've rightly assessed their condition. Chapter 9, verse 32. So now our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you which has found us our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt in truth, but we have acted wickedly. This is the epitome of repentance. Every judgment you've made is true. I have been wicked and I confess it. And at the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, the people vow to keep covenant obedience with God once again. This time we'll really obey. This time we'll make it. And things are looking up. In chapters 11 and 12, they chose 10% of all the people to live in Jerusalem. The rest occupied the surrounding towns. They had everything. They had gatekeepers, guards in Jerusalem. They had temple servants. They had singers in the temple to praise God every day. They had priests. They had Levites running the religious worship life of the people. Other than officially still being under the rule of Persia, things were looking up. And in fact, they celebrated in grand fashion. Chapter 12, verse 27 Chapter 12, verse 27, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. They, they gather singers. They Look what they do in verse 31. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I had two great choirs of thanksgiving stand, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the dung gate. And, and what they basically do is put two choirs literally singing from the walls of Jerusalem toward one another. And how determined were they to obey they would do anything to obey the Lord. They would obey all of His law. Nehemiah 13, 1, would make a great ending to this book. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. 
Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they separated all foreigners from Israel. What is this? This is total obedience. This is looking at every aspect of the law and saying we will conform because we love our covenant-keeping God. Total obedience. Total loyalty. Now at this moment, Nehemiah had gone back to Babylonia. He comes back to Jerusalem and he discovers chaos. I said that the first three verses would have made a great ending to Ezra and Nehemiah, but the wheels begin to come off. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 9, one of the priests is discovered giving a free apartment in the temple complex to one of his relatives, desecrating the house of God. Nehemiah throws the relative out, threw all his furniture out too. He brings back all the provisions meant to help the servants of God. Verses 10 through 13 Nehemiah found out, speaking of the provisions, that the Levites and the singers weren't being paid what was owed to them, such that they had to go back to their own fields. They had to earn their own living. They were forsaking the house of God. Nehemiah has to fix this as well. Verses 15 through 22, Nehemiah discovers that on the Sabbath day, the sign of the Mosaic covenant given by God to indicate their trust in Him, their fidelity to Him, their, their other loyalty. On Sabbath days, a giant market was being set up in Jerusalem. Every Sabbath day, selling anything and everything, turning the Sabbath into a county fair. So Nehemiah had to lock the gates every Sabbath. Nehemiah commanded the Levites to guard the gates and keep the Sabbath holy. And and suddenly, in the middle of this section of other failure of the people, Nehemiah says a prayer. And it's an odd prayer because it is not an intercessory prayer. Nehemiah 13.22 And I said to the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and come as gatekeepers to keep the Sabbath day holy for this also. Here's his prayer. Remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. In verses 23 through 29, again, as happened at the end of the book of Ezra, once again the people began intermarrying with foreign women such that half the children didn't even speak Hebrew, but they only spoke the languages of their mothers Nehemiah confronted the men. He cursed them. He beat some of them. He pulled their hair out. They were destroying Israel from the inside out. And not only that, the priests had stopped providing wood for the offerings at appointed times for the first fruits offering. They were abandoning the prescribed worship of God. Nehemiah is running around trying to plug holes in the dam spiritually. The, The temple has been desecrated. The servants of God aren't being paid. The Sabbath's being ignored, turned into a county fair. They've ignored God's law concerning marriage. Again, they've abandoned the prescribed worship of God. It's going down quickly. Going down, what's happening? Why did the return from exile ultimately fall flat? Why did it fail? Why was Nehemiah forced to provide external enforcement of God's law instead of simply enjoying seeing God's people obey from an internal desire? Why did the return fall flat? Why did the kingdom fail again? Their geography changed, but their hearts didn't. Their attempts at self-revitalization spiritually failed. What does Israel need? They need a new covenant in Christ. 
that quick prayer of Nehemiah in 13.22, remember me, the disappointing Indian of Ezra Nehemiah, as the great Nehemiah acknowledges that the return of Israel has been ultimately a failure. So the book ends up with Nehemiah praying for himself. Verse 31, the very last sentence of the book, remember me, O my God, for good. Why? Because Nehemiah knows the present is a failure. He'll have to look to the future. So the kingdom of God fails in the Old Testament. While the kingdom of God is failing in the Old Testament, there's still hope in the midst of failure. There's still hope. And that hope is in the form of prophecy. That's our second emphasis tonight. And we're we're going to go to some familiar texts and we won't stay long in any of them. But I just want to give you some samples Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. And I'm going to prove something to you here in a moment as well. Isaiah chapter 2. Just a few selections. While in the short term, the kingdom of God on earth is failing massively, and I've proven this to you, God's program is actually moving forward exactly as the Old Testament prophets say it will. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Now it will be that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. What does that sound like? Sounds like the days of Solomon, doesn't it? And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may instruct us from His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. What is God promising Isaiah through to Israel, through Isaiah rather, to Israel? Jerusalem becomes the chief city of the nations and the chief nation rather and, and all of the earth now comes to them just like in Solomon's day. Look at Isaiah 9. You can tell by the number of times we turn to Isaiah 9 that this is a key text in our study in the millennium. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And now we have the promise of the reign of Christ, and it's characterized by wisdom. He's the wonderful counselor. By power, he's the mighty God. By protection, he's the eternal father. It's characterized by peace. He's the prince of peace. And verse 7 says that justice and righteousness will characterize his reign. Look at page or two forward to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And we have a, a description of his reign here, that he'll, the Messiah will reign with wisdom, with understanding, with counsel, with might, with knowledge. His judgments will be perfect based on the omniscient knowledge of every person. Because verse 3 says, that he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. Why? Because he's omniscient, all-knowing God. Turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 17. There's no way to do this justice in a a moment or two. But I just want to point out a couple of features of this coming kingdom that even as the kingdom is failing in the Old Testament, it's being prophesied to succeed in the future. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I am creating the new heavens and a new earth. That's the end product of redemptive history. That's the very end of the story. 
But then the descriptions include a kingdom on earth that are not the current age and they can't be the final state. There's long life for the descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. Verse 20, that it'll be a shame when the youth dies at the age of 100. You have the development of a thriving economy which, which isn't in danger of enemies stealing what they've built. Verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. So as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. In other words, if you build something, you get to wear it out all the way. It won't be stolen from you. It won't be taken from you. Children will be born without fear of what may happen to them. Verse 23, they will not labor in vain. There will be a reinstatement of the uncorrupted harmony of the animal kingdom. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. Go back a little ways with me to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we see one of the most overt choices presented to mankind. One of the most direct choices concerning the coming kingdom of Christ. God is presented as laughing in heaven at the kings of the earth who believe they can stand against God. And God's solution in verse 6 I have installed my king upon Zion, that is Jerusalem. And now the most overt, direct choice given to mankind, verse 10. So now, O king, show insight, take warning, O judges of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Here's the choice. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 72, you don't have to turn there, but just to, just to hear this, it makes promises concerning the welfare of the people, that Christ will end poverty, he'll end class oppression, class warfare. The so-called welfare system will be simple. The king will make sure everyone is provided for, and the, the economy of the earth flourishes. Turn right near the end of the Old Testament to Amos chapter 9. You recall that Adam's curse includes working the ground by the sweat of his brow with the cursed earth constantly fighting him until finally the earth wins and claims Adam. Even in our fallen world today, the process of sowing seed and reaping a harvest is a marvelous process invented by God. But never forget that the sowing and reaping in our current sin-ridden world is the worst it's ever been. That even as we get to drive around and see the farmland around here, this is the cursed version. But the principles of sowing and reaping will be enhanced. The curse on the ground will be lifted, at least partially rolled back. Look at chapter 9, Amos 9, verse 13. Amos 9.13, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will melt. And he goes on to talk about rebuilding desolated cities, planting vineyards, making gardens, eating their, eating their fruit. And most importantly, verse 15, I will plant them on their land. They will not again be uprooted. Verse 11 says that the Davidic king will be reigning and when that happens, the principle of sowing and reaping will be magnified, amplified. 
that if you're the guy harvesting, you better be faster than the guy who's sowing the seeds because things are growing quickly. You don't have to turn there, but in Daniel 2, the prophet Daniel interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar in which God is revealing his plan for the nations. Kingdoms will arise, but eventually, Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up, which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself stand forever. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I love this imagery, the kingdom is pictured as a massive stone coming to crush all the kingdoms of the earth and to reign forever. And of course, the prophecy of the coming kingdom, which is like this massive stone, is given directly and openly and overtly in Zechariah 14, that Yahweh will be king over all the earth. Now, if it seems a bit tedious to look at all of these passages, and some of them not for the first time, that's the point. I want you to see that the Old Testament builds a tension, a yearning, a desperation for spiritual relief. That you have on the one hand the the failure time and time and time again of the kingdom. And on the other hand, you have these prophecies just pulling against that. And you read these glorious things in Isaiah 2, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, in, in Amos 9 and everywhere all over the Old Testament. And you say, when is that going to happen? And it just builds your anticipation. Now, I told you I was going to prove something to you. And that is this. If a lot of the passages we just looked at seem familiar to you in this study, then praise the Lord that the word of God in relation to his coming kingdom is becoming part of who you are. Because you know what these passages are. So here's the question for the Old Testament reader, for the ones who lived in in the times of the Old Testament. If the story of the Old Testament shows the ultimate failure of the kingdom of God on earth because of a sinful heart of men and and even the faithful Jews who returned to Israel, if they couldn't restart the nation, they couldn't keep on track and that Nehemiah throws up his hands and says, Lord, remember me at least. What can possibly be different? What can change that in over 4,000 years of Old Testament history has never succeeded? What can possibly change? Well, what will be different is what is one of the greatest aha moments, one of the greatest eye-opening and hope-giving moments, revelations in all the Bible. It's one that takes mankind's failed kingdom relationship with God and puts it on a whole new plane. The the great aha moment in the Bible is found in several places. But the guardian, the sentinel, the preeminent text of Scripture, which opens the spiritual hope, you don't have to turn there, just listen, is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant. That's the aha moment. And what is it that will take mankind's failed kingdom relationship with God, put it on a whole new plane? What is it that will conquer the sin nature of mankind? It will be the future hope that God, listen carefully, will not only dwell with men, but God will dwell inside men. That's what makes the difference. Now tonight has been primarily dark and dreary. We show the Old Testament weeping with hopelessness 
and yet giving a glimmer that all is not lost, that a new covenant is coming. But how is this covenant directly linked to the coming age of Messiah ruling the world? Well, next time is going to be the opposite of tonight, filled with wonder and joy and anticipation, because I'm going to show you 12 blessings of the new covenant. And they're, they're, they're overwhelming. It takes the hopelessness of the Old Testament narrative and turns our eyes to the king of all the kings. Now, I said at the beginning of our time tonight that there's a gospel message implicit in the journey that we just took in the Old Testament. And this is important. What we saw tonight is that the very best of men, the very closest we come to the kingdom of God on earth, King Solomon, he couldn't maintain a right and pleasing relationship with God. And what is driving us toward the new covenant is the fact that mankind can't please God on his own. Therefore, God must intervene. God must change your heart. Let me give you two implications of this hopelessness unless God intervenes. First of all, that other personal hopelessness of ever being able to please God is actually the spiritual prerequisite to saving faith. You must have that hopelessness. That's the only place you can be where God can save you. It's only in the state of spiritual despair of, of realizing how heinous and disgusting and infuriating your sin is before God. It's only in the state of realizing that God hates even your good works. He hates them. They're filthy rags to him. Only in that state can a person exercise saving faith. Only in that state can they receive the free gift of forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Christ. That's the first implication. The second one is related to it. No one is in that state of hopelessness of their own accord. You can't do it. You can't conjure up by your will the hopelessness in your sin to actually exercise saving faith. We saw all kinds of people trying to do good, but as Paul says in Romans 3, there's no one who does good. And I think the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. He's lamenting the days when he was trying to keep the law of God, yet because he was unregenerate, he was unable to please God. And he expresses the horror of his best efforts, the very best he could do, a man who knew the word of God like no one else did, and yet his best efforts ended in failure. And he says in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's just, I can't do enough. I can't please God. And so the new covenant is necessary. And what does God do under the umbrella of the new covenant? This is what the outworking of the new covenant looks like. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And, and, Jesus himself equates this newness of life, this regeneration, this act of God, which he calls being born again. Jesus himself equates being born again with the ability to be part of, guess what? The future kingdom of God. How does he equate it? John 3, 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom of God. And he goes on to explain how this occurs. The spiritual rebirth occurs only at the good pleasure and timing and will of the Spirit of God. The Spirit blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. 
See, the entire Old Testament gives witness to the utter inability of mankind to please God. God must intervene. Anyone who says, I came to God because of an act of my own will, my own smarts, my own intellect to decide I needed God is crazy. There's no possible way. The very best of men couldn't do it. Next time, we're going to open the curtain. We're going to go from the darkness to the light to see how the glorious provisions of the new covenant in Christ, how they interact with the millennium. And they're beautiful to see. I can hardly wait to get to it. We'll spend most of our time next time in Jeremiah 31. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful that by your grace, you opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. You sent your spirit to blow, as Jesus said, to regenerate our hearts, to place us in that place of utter hopelessness in our own sin, to know that we can't possibly please God. And the spirit changed us, made us into new creations in Christ such that we were activated to be able to exercise saving faith. To see Christ as our Savior, to see the heinousness of our own sin, to see the glory of God. Lord, I pray that our time tonight has returned us once again to the cross. To be reminded that if it were not for your grace to open our eyes, we would still be in darkness. But you have opened to us the beauty and the majesty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. And eternity won't be long enough to thank you. But as we spoke of this morning and relates to tonight, we would pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.